0: good morning morning. this is going to be fun Uh, i'm really excited to be with you uh, this morning Um, i just want to take a moment and just maybe point out the obvious that uh, this all doesn't happen by accident Uh, the fantastic music the hopefully okay preaching the really great uh, teaching that happens with our youth that happens in our classes in life change fellowship all the prep and time and effort that's put into this i mean you, you could look around and probably find about 500 to 1,000 hours that people have put in to make this time and this space really, really rich and valuable and important. And I hope you don't miss that. I know some of you guys live other places. Uh, we actually have one of our far-flung families back with us today. Uh, great to have you guys with us, the Otspies. Um and, and they would probably say the same thing, that it's for them. They miss this, just rich fellowship with good, clear teaching of the word, Um, And so don't take that for granted. Don't take the music for granted. Uh, Don't take the care that your kids get for granted. Let's praise God for that. Uh, As we get started this morning, uh, I'm Noah Joyner. I know most of you. If I've not had a chance to meet you, I'd love to get to meet you afterwards. Um, Come up, introduce yourself. I'd love to talk to you about what the Lord's doing in your life. So we're coming to the end uh, of our time with the Apostle Peter here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll do uh, one more week uh, after today, kind of a review and an overview and, and resume through some songs and some other things that uh, Larry and Daniel will do together. And then we're going to ramp up for the book of Revelation. So that's going to be really, really fun. I uh, hope I don't get asked to preach for that one. Um, hadn't happened yet, but I'm sure Larry will get sick or something. Uh, so, so we're coming to the end, but Peter also senses the end of, of his time. And as he writes, he has that in mind. He wants to make sure that, that his second letter it leaves his friends prepared to walk in faith after he departs. He knows his friends really well. And he knows their struggles, and he knows what they need to hear. And if we read closely... It seems like three general concerns are on Peter's heart. If we read the whole book, kind of pay attention. These seem to be the the big concerns that are on Peter's heart. That his friends have a lack of assurance concerning salvation, a lack of confidence in Scripture, and a lack of trust in Christ. Peter's friends, they have doubts. They have doubts about God's ability to save them. They have doubts about the message of salvation and the Scriptures in general. And ultimately, they have doubts about God and his character. I say all of this to help you understand why is it that Peter is writing to to these dear fellow believers. And to help us see that they're not all that different than us. We have doubts too. I speak to people all the time who have doubts. They're not sure about Christianity. They're not sure about Jesus. They're not sure about the Bible. And many of these folks walk around every day as Christians. And they have doubts, and they live with those doubts. I spent a lot of time recently considering what is happening around us in the culture and how it affects the church. And as a missionary and a a pastor, I want to know and understand the culture that I'm ministering in. And it seems to me that a shift has taken full effect. It's been happening, and it's really fully in effect now. And here it is. It used to be that some things were to be believed without question as fact. Men are men, women are women. To take an innocent life is wrong. The world was created by some God somewhere. But now all of these beliefs that were held to be true by societies for thousands of years are now up for question. Everything is up for question. It's possible to question Anything. And it may be that to question is in our society of a higher moral value than to believe. It used to be a, 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 a kind of a, a feather in your cap to be a true believer. Now that's not so. And it's so much so that, that you remember in the 80s people started talking about that uh, maybe Elvis really wasn't dead. And then late in 1992, REM told us, you really shouldn't believe they put a man on the moon. And then by the middle of 2000, the notion that the World Trade Center attacks was orchestrated by the U.S. government wasn't totally out of bounds. And now, Kyrie Irving believes that the world is flat. And maybe Tupac and Biggie really aren't dead. (laughs) Many of you, you sit here and you may think that all of these notions are ludicrous. And, And they may be. But they go to show how skeptical and doubt-filled our age is. But here's the question. Has this leaked into the church? Have we all soaked in the juices of doubt for so long that that's how we're starting to taste? Doubtful, unsure, and unstable. One of the best resources out there that I've found on this topic is a little book called Our Secular Age. It actually was a dollar on um, Kindle a couple of weeks ago. It might still be a dollar. Best dollar you will spend today. It takes the writings of Charles uh, Charles Taylor and James K.A. Smith and it dumbs them down for people like me. These guys are really smart. I'm really not. Then some other guys kind of wrote some articles, dumbed it down, made it so that I could understand it. And here are a couple of quotes that I found in this little book to ring, that rang very true to me. And I want you to listen to them and see if they ring true to you. Nothing is easy about faith in a secular age. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. That all the things we believe can be contested. And so it makes them harder to believe. They are doubtable. One quote says, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. He goes on to say, we're all Thomas now. Another place says, today, though though religion is the luxury, the dangerous indulgence, faith is now more difficult than unbelief. We're adrift in stormy seas of doubt, every man, woman, and child fighting for the lifeboat of belief something fundamental has changed in western culture that runs deeper than our outward changes in technology so do you feel this is this your experience belief while doubting faith is more difficult than unbelief adrift in the stormy seas of doubt fighting for the lifeboat of belief Nothing about faith is easy. Do you feel that? Do you experience that? And I bet the younger you are, the more you would say yes to this. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that we all walk around out there and come in here battered by the stormy seas of doubt. You will most likely have some doubts about what I say this morning. Some of you may have serious doubts about the the Bible that will open in just a moment. But I want to say to the rest of the Thomases out there who are with me, doubts are part of growing up in a world that is increasingly disinterested in any form of truth. And here is where we find ourselves in this cultural moment. And it's important to admit it so that we can battle them, so that we can battle our doubts. And this is my goal this morning, to follow Peter's example by highlighting a few ways we can battle doubts together. Many times we face our, face our doubts with, with little ability to defend ourselves. We let them slap us around without much resistance. And when we do put up a fight, it's half-hearted, and weak, and inefficient, and, and easy to combat. It makes me think about this clip.
1: It'd be nice if you could pull me into town. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a system of self-defense that I developed over two seasons of fighting in the octagon. It's called Rex Quando! I need a volunteer. OK, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your sensei. Bow to your sensei! OK, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, baby. Okay. Now, watch this, everybody. Grab my arm. The other arm. My other arm. Okay, now watch this. I'm just going to break the wrist and walk away. Break the wrist walk away. Jeez. Okay, it's just that simple. Now, I want you to kick me. Come on, kick me. Okay, do it again. Do it again. Okay, you block it every time. Have a seat. to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things first off. Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more flying solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last <laughs> off, my students will learn about self respect. Do you think anybody thinks I'm a failure because I go home to Starlight night? Forget about it. Now, for only $300, you can sign up right now for my eight week program.
0: Well, that place has a rip off. say no more. <laughs> Oftentimes we feel like Kip when facing our doubts. We, we lace up our rollerblades, we go into town, we give it our best shot only to be slapped in the neck. Our best efforts uh, on our own, they aren't all that good. And I wonder if many of us um, haven't spent much time preparing ourselves to battle against our doubts many times our tactics for opposing our doubts are reactive and ill-conceived and i know many of you like me you struggle daily with doubts and and i want to you to have this image in your mind of, of kip and rex quando and if you think you're going to show up with no training and confront large doubts he will break your w- wrist and walk away every time break the wrist walk away that's what he'll do, because you're not prepared. But I also want you to know that your doubt is a chump, and it's not to be listened to. Your doubt is like Rex Kwan He's a nobody. He's a big fish in a little pond. Rex quando, your doubt, uh, it only has a couple of moves. It's a ripoff. Don't buy it. So what I hope we can do this morning is to prepare ourselves to confront the doubts that we have, to think clearly about the way that Peter is encouraging the people he's speaking to to confront their doubts that are very similar to ours. So let's pray this morning as we open the word together. Father, I do pray that you would um, smother our doubts. You would give us grace to doubt our doubts. You would give us grace to heckle our doubts. You would give us grace to believe and understand your word, that it would come to life in us, that it would be a testimony unto itself to us, that it would clarify itself to us, and that as we hear it, it would bring life to us. Form us by your word, Lord, we pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. So look with me in 2 Peter, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, he says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So Peter picks up where we left off last week. He says, since you are waiting on these, and, and what he means is these things to come to pass. And so just a little reminder for those of us who were sleeping last week, uh, he's talking about the predicted coming of the Lord Which is not happening quickly enough for some, so they scoff at the idea of the coming of Christ. So it's a two part prediction. People will scoff, and Jesus will return to destructively restore all things and bring about a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Now, the first question we have to face as we we try and apply this to us is are you waiting on this? Are you waiting for the return of Christ and the establishment of the new heaven, new earth, where righteousness dwells? And by wait, he's implying some type of hope. So the question is, what are you hopefully anticipating? Is it it back to school? Every kid says no. Every parent's like, yeah, that'd be cool. Back to school, an empty nest, a full nest, a 401k, 5 o'clock on Friday, getting those bills paid off, losing that weight. Gaining that spouse, vacation, vocation, graduation. What is the thing that you're anticipating? What is the thing that you're looking forward to? and What do you hunger for? So none of the things I mentioned, is, just mentioned, none of them are bad. They're just a trail of crumbs that lead us to the city where righteousness dwells. So enjoy the crumbs, just don't think they're the feast. It leads to something better there's a greater thing that we anticipate. And Peter wants his readers to know that that there's a response to this future, this this fact of the new heavens and the new earth. And he encourages them towards diligence. He did it back in, in chapter one, verse 10. He said, be diligent to make your calling and election sure by living out faith and love of others and love of God and holy living. And I think he's simply revisiting that idea here. So he's going back to what he said back in in chapter 1 when he said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This word can form, can hold inside of it, or be translated as to make sure of. So he's basically saying, get busy making sure God called you and chose you by living out the Christian life. Living like Jesus since he chose you. Prove who your daddy is by living like the father, is basically what he's saying. When he says, don't have any spot or blemish back over here in in verse 14 of chapter 3. He's looking back at the sacrificial system. Of, of the Israelites, where when they would make a sacrifice, everything had to be perfect. It had to be the best. But he's also recalling what he wrote in his first letter, where he says that Jesus is a lamb without blemish or spot, by whom we have been purchased so we can live out holy lives. So he's saying, yes, you need to live a holy life, but that's connected to Christ himself. And in addition, he's contrasting his beloved friends with the false prophets back from chapter 2 in 2 Peter, who he calls blots and blemishes on the feast that they're having together. So he wants to be very clear with them. God is calling you to live like Christ, not like the false prophets. Living like Christ is one of the activities that Peter appeals to help us battle our doubtful angst. So if you want to know, how do I battle my doubts? Live in holiness. We saw it in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, where he's encouraging them to be sure about their salvation through godly living. Here in 2 Peter 3.14, he tacks on the word peace after uh, his call to holy living to denote a confidence in the peace that God gives in his son Christ that they have peace with God through Christ and therefore they should be living holy lives that he would find them living holy lives at peace so if God has made peace with me through Christ then I can have confidence at the return of Christ so it's holy living that helps me battle my doubts this is, this is kind of counterintuitive. Get busy trusting Jesus while you're not trusting Jesus is kind of the way that it goes. Start doing the thing that you know he asked you to do as you develop the muscles needed to do the thing, right? So it's like start working out so you can work out better. He wants us to Engage. So some of you might be thinking, so are you saying I should battle my doubts about salvation through living a holy life because that is why God will save me? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying my salvation is completed in Christ and his work on the cross. Now I confirm or make sure of or prove that fact by living in a way that only God can empower. Prove it by living in a way that only God can empower. Brothers and sisters, if we could save ourselves through, through living holy lives or keeping some sort of law, then Christ died needlessly. Our situation is so desperate that only the death and resurrection of the only Son of God can deal with the penalty for my sin. And now we live each day in response to that fact, in light of that salvation. We wait for him. And his return. He continues when he says in 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter here is picking back up on what was said uh, in chapter 3. And there was this argument going on in chapter 3, and here's how it went it says, Jesus said he would return. He hasn't returned. Therefore, God can't be trusted. This is what the scoffers are saying. Don't trust God. He said he was going to return. Jesus said he was going to return. He didn't return. So therefore, you shouldn't trust him. But Peter adds a qualifier into the statement. So it goes like this. Jesus said he would return. He hasn't returned yet. The reason he has not returned yet is because he is patient and gracious. Therefore, the longer he takes, the greater his grace and patience So the more time it takes, the more it proves that God is patient and gracious. That's the argument that he's making. Peter is saying anticipate him every day, but for each day he does not come, add it up as part of his plan for salvation and recognize how it proves his gracious character. So by adding that qualifier, he totally changes the way that the argument goes. So instead of saying, Well, I'm a fool for waiting on Christ since he's not showing. We can confidently say, since Jesus didn't show up today, great is the salvation of the Lord. He is so patient. And every day more, and every day more, and every day more. And multiply that by a thousand years, two thousand years. Seems like God's really patient and kind, right? He's very gracious. His salvation is grand. But surely doubt will say, oh, that's convenient. This argument is built in such a way that it can't be tested for accuracy because the less the prophecy of Jesus' second coming is fulfilled, the more we are supposed to believe that he will come. This is the way that doubt works. It jumps all over there. and it's like, oh, no, no, you should doubt that. To which one may respond by asking. You can respond to this doubt by asking. Has God proved his faithfulness elsewhere? Has he shown his patient promise, keeping grace anywhere else? Has he? Yes, he has, in the first coming of Christ, which included prophecies that took thousands of years, where Christ demonstrated that he was the promised Messiah and then died and raised in fulfillment of the scriptures that were written long before. So, this is part two of the same play. This has happened before, the people have waited before. People have scoffed before, and guess what? Christ came, and he did exactly what the Scripture said he would do. So if his patient, gracious character prevailed before, why would I expect that it would not continue to do so in the future? would actually be a pretty good response, and a reasonable response. These are conversations that I have with my doubtful self all the time. All the time. I play ping pong with this person in my head. And I've learned to doubt my doubts. And I learned, I've learned points and counterpoints to his points. And to anticipate his points so that I can meet those points. Right? Because if I don't, guess what? Slap on the neck. We have to engage and to know what do the scriptures say. Why do they say them? When did they say them? Where did they say them? How often did they say them? And we apply that to our doubts. He continues. In the second half of verse 15, he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. So he's saying, Paul talks about this too. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so on the face, it would kind of seem strange that Peter would appeal to Paul's letters, but it's consistent with how he has encouraged them uh, so far through the book. And he's making yet another appeal to scripture as the ultimate encouragement for their doubts. In the beginning of the chapter 3, he reminds them of what the holy prophets had predicted, calling them to remember what was written in the scriptures. So he's already said it once in chapter 3. He says, hey, don't forget what was written in the scriptures by the holy prophets. So he's pointing them to scripture. And before that, in chapter 1, he asked them to pay attention to the prophetic word or the scriptures because they are more sure even than the fact that Peter saw Jesus face to face and walked with him day to day. He's saying... The scriptures, the written word, is a more sure word than my experiences with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a better word. It's more sure. It's more confirmed. And in each of these, he's pushing them and he's pushing us to remember what the scriptures say and to pay attention to their instructions. To position the scriptures as the highest authority and encouragement in our lives. To seek them in our moments of doubt. This seems very counterintuitive. In my moments of doubt, I'd run to the thing I'm doubting. But what if I have doubts about the scriptures? First I would ask, where did you get those doubts? Is the source of those doubts trustable? And shouldn't you doubt that source of doubt as consistently as you doubt the scriptures? So if you come in here today and you doubt the scriptures, I get it. I totally get it. But let me ask you, where did those doubts come from? And have you doubted those doubts? Have you followed the train of doubt against those doubts? And why do you trust that source rather than the source of Scripture? Like the person who says there's no absolute truth, to which it would be consistent to ask, is that absolutely true? We have to confront ourselves and our doubts because these thoughts and ideas, they live within us, but they've soaked into us from the outside and now we taste like it. So what is the source of doubt toward the word of God? And one doesn't have to think very long to remember that that this is the first tactic of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? A little bit of doubt goes a long way. Just a little bit just a little poison in the well and nobody wants to drink it. Just a little bit. And it's finished. God walked with them day to day in the cool of the day, knowing them and spending time with them, proving his character to them. And the serpent shows up and says, well, did he really say that? And here we are. Same tactic that Satan uses with Jesus in the desert questioning the word of God. But does Jesus run from it? No, he doubles down on it. And he says, no, you don't understand it. You misinterpret it. Just a small twist on the word of God. The evil one does. And this is exactly the point that Peter makes about what some do with the writings of Paul. They bend them as to lay a trap. So their intention is to lay this trap for people, to lead them away from Christ. But ultimately, they will be caught in their own contraption, he says. It will lead to their destruction. The destructive plan that they're laying out for others to lead people away from Christ and trust in the word will actually be the trap that they get caught in. It will be the evidence that's brought out against them at trial. Destroyed and caught in their own traps. He continues, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter begins this uh, farewell by reminding his friends that they are beloved both to him and to God. He calls them beloved twice in four verses. Why do that? Why repeat himself that way? And I think it's because he knows that doubt is strongest when we don't think we are loved. If you don't think God loves you, if you have questions about that, you will doubt him constantly. So does God love us? How do you know that? How do you know that God loves you? A provable fact that God loves you. The Bible tells us. And that, that love that was explained in the Bible was demonstrated in, cross, but in, in Christ's death on the cross, right? Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and put his son forward as a propitiation. Demonstrating that love, dying on the cross, receiving the penalty for my sin. That's the exclamation point. That's the prover to the fact that God loves his people. So if the gospel is flimsy for you, If you don't understand the gospel and how it works and and how it functions and the person that it's connected to and how it's an expression of God's mercy and his justice and his patience and his grace, how the character of God is displayed on the cross, if you don't understand that and the gospel is flimsy for you, your doubts will stand up heavy against it. And you will doubt. He gives them two parting points. One negative and, and one positive. One, one do and, and one don't do. He says, don't be carried away with the error of lawless or unprincipled or wicked people. What is this error that he's talking about? And so, assuming Peter is talking about the scripture twisting false prophets, and I think he is. That's who he's, who he's talking about here. I would have to say that the error would be not paying attention to the scriptures from chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. He said, Pay attention. And then he immediately after that starts talking about the false prophets. And so that's probably who he's talking about. And their error is that they don't pay attention to the scriptures. They don't submit to it. They don't give care to it. They twist it and bring about destructive heresies. That's that's the issue. is scripture twisting. Not submitting to it. Not having scripture as an authority over you. Notice that he says one loses their stability if they go the way of the lawless. That's the same word used in verse 16 to describe those who twist the scriptures. Unstable and ignorant. And so the image that comes to mind is a tree that's roots are too shallow to give stability to the growth that is above the ground. It doesn't bear fruit and it doesn't stand up in the storms of life because its roots have no depth and no stability No enrichment. He's telling us to grow those roots down. Grow those roots down. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, is what he says. What an invitation. What a contrast. You can grow with Jesus, the righteous one, or be carried away to the fire pile with the lawless, unprincipled, and the wicked. Which one do you want? Which one do you want for your children? Let's grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, how's that going for you? Are you embracing the invitation to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Like, what does that look like for you? Where are you doing that? Are you doing that in community here? Is that an active thing for you, where you meet with other people and you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Are you embracing that invitation? So to grow in grace, what does that mean? That means gospel dependency. Are you as, are you as dependent on the gospel today as you were the very first day that you trusted Jesus, if not more? Or are you trusting in your own abilities, and your own living, the things you do or the things you don't do to give you a right relationship with God? Or are you trusting in the grace of Christ, that only by the death and resurrection of Christ, that he paid the penalty for your sin, and that that affects every decision, every relationship, Every moment you face every day, that it's in light of that grace. That's growing in grace more and more and more. Not forgetting that and, and grace becoming and the gospel becoming something very thin and small. Are you growing in your relationship to Christ? It says to grow in the knowledge of. I don't think that that's growing in facts alone. Now, maybe that you're growing in some facts about Jesus, but just like I'm growing in facts about who my wife is. She told me something last night. We were having a conversation. She told me something about her childhood that I didn't know. But that makes me know her more and it enriches my relationship with her and now I can have a vibrant, lasting and growing relationship with her better than I did before because of knowledge about her. So it's not just knowledge about, it's relationship to. That's what we're being called into. Is that the that? the grace of Christ and the knowledge of Christ, a personal relationship with him day to day would grow up in us and it would take root so much so that it would support the growth of our lives. It would give growth to our lives. Peter ends the book with a simple phrase, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. He's reminding his readers of why do we do this? Why do we live towards Christ? Why do we put this effort in? Why do we be diligent? Why do we pay attention? Why do we work out this salvation? And he says it's for the glory of Christ. That he would be glorified. And he ties all of that to this day of eternity. That he's holding up before them consistently saying it will all be worth it. Don't forget, this all leads to a day and a time and a feast and a place where all of your hopes and dreams and desires as a believer will be fulfilled and you will know him and walk with him and stand with him and see him face to face. No more suffering. That's why we do all of this. It's for his glory from now even until that day. I want to take a moment and, and re-summarize, just to, just to leave you with some clarity on, on what we're being asked to do. So if you missed everything else before, so this is kind of some summary of doubt defense that he's giving. He, Peter gives some really pointed instruction about battling, battling doubt, and, and here's a few of them. He says, one, make your calling and election sure or confirm your salvation by living holy lives in love of God and others. Two, pay attention to the scriptures because they are more sure than any other voice or experience. Three, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those are three things that the book consistently holds up throughout it, and that he repeats here in the last little bit. And so here comes the questions. And I want you to hear these questions. I want you to listen to them, and I want you to ro- roll them out around in your mind and maybe pick one out as I ask them. Are you pursuing holiness in your life? Are you putting on new obedience, or running on the fumes of past seasons of growth? Are you, grow, are you giving attention to the scriptures daily? Are you listening to other voices that breed doubt? Are there voices that just breed doubt in you and you listen to them? Or are you giving daily attention to the scriptures? What is your highest or truest authority? Is it God and his word? Are you growing in the grace of Christ. Is the, is the good news of salvation sweeter to you now than before? Or has it grown stale to you? Do you hear the gospel and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus died, died and raised from the... Yeah, I'm good. Or is it sweet to you? Are you knowing more about Christ as a way to know him personally? There are things that I've learned about Christ this year that I never knew. And it's making him sweeter to me. Are you pursuing a real relationship with the Lord who has saved you? Or are you putting more time into other relationships? Not that they're bad, they're just not paramount. Are they, is he getting the attention that's necessary? And so at North Wake, we have some simple ways to help you uh, pursue each of these areas. We want to help you do this. This is why you're here, right? Most of you, as I look around, most of you are members of this church. You said, take care of us. Help me. I want to grow in Jesus. And so we have some really simple ways that we go about doing some of these things. Most of them you know. I'm going to remind you, though. Your small group should be a place where you're actively discussing how you're pursuing a holy and godly life. And it should be a place where people can affirm that with you. And they can call you out if you're not doing it. If you're not in a small group, find one. Any small group leaders in the house? Raise your hand. Raise it real high, real high, really, really, really high, really high. If you're not in a small group, these people would love to talk to you. They'll take you to lunch. (laughs) Our Life Change Fellowship classes are designed to help you pay attention, to to love and, and to obey the scriptures. If I did a show of hands right now, I'm not going to, but if I did a show of hands right now and I said, Okay, all of you that are consistently involved in Life Change Fellowship, raise your hand. It would be less than half of you. We have this massive resource that God is giving to us that meets every week, and we will watch your kids with the best teachers that you will find anywhere teaching the word. And a lot of it gets left on the table. Don't do that. It's good for you. We will encourage you. It's fun. Let us help you. We'll leave the light on. Come on. (laughs) Corporate prayer. We're going to gather tonight in this space, 6 o'clock. And we're going to pray specifically about the return of Christ, right, which will develop our relationship with him. Come, Lord Jesus. We're talking to him. And we're going to pray for those who suffer or struggle while they wait. How do we actively wait for Christ? And then when we're struggling, what do we do? We bring those burdens to one another and and we lift them up before God. We're going to do that together in this space tonight. If you haven't been to corporate prayer in a while, come on. Please. There's plenty of spaces. We can fill this thing up. We'd love to have you with us. It is a joy. And lastly, what about your personal pursuit of Christ? How are you daily pursuing him? If that's not something you do, please, please, Make a plan to do that. If you don't know how to do that, ask me. Call me. My number is 919-637-4097. You can call me, text me, or ask me. I will talk to you about that. And any one of our pastors, any one of our elders, any one of our leaders would love to speak to you about that. We want to help you do that, to pursue Christ daily. The best defense is a good offense. And so we don't wait on our doubts, we attack them. We know their schemes, and we hit them before they can hit us. In every battle, one studies his opponent's tactics. Everybody does this. In sports, they watch tape all the way up to the game. In, in boxing or mixed martial arts, they'll get a sparring partner that's uh, similar to the person they're going to fight, and they'll fight that person so that they can know what is this person going to do so they can anticipate. The shortest fight in MMA history happened about three weeks ago. Five seconds. Why was it so fast? And I'll tell you why. Because one guy's a wrestler and one guy's a kickboxer. And this is what happened. The wrestler comes right right away, just out of the break. He comes out and he's going to shoot and grab the kickboxer. But the kickboxer knows he's a wrestler. And so he's thinking, if he shoots, I know what I'm going to do. And what he does is this. He runs and jumps with a knee like this. And hits him right there. And the guy. Is out. Five seconds. Why could he do that? Because he knew his opponent. And he knew what his opponent was going to do. And he didn't wait. He acted. He engaged and he jumped on it. And so many of us are waiting because of our doubts. Don't wait. Attack your doubts. Brothers and sisters. Christ is gives a knee to the face of the author of our doubts. And he's out. He's writhing around a bit. He's rolling on the ground. But he's done. He is finished. And Christ gives a knee in the face to our doubts if we will let him, if we will follow him, if we will listen to him, if we will read him, if we will engage him. Engage, engage, engage your doubts with these simple things that Peter is leading us to do. You may be sitting here today, and you might think, well, I don't doubt. I'm not a doubter. That's not me. That's not the way I'm bent. That's not the way I'm wired. Let me encourage you towards Jude, verse 22. And it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Jude ends his book by saying, have mercy on those who doubt. So for all of us who are are doubting people, have mercy on us. Help us, encourage us, teach us, lead us, guide us, remind us. Engage us at that level. And the only reason that Jude can say that is because God is a God who has mercy on doubters. If you doubt today, this is a safe place. And God is a safe person to doubt alongside of. He's got it. He's not intimidated and he's not scared. He wants to address your doubts. And let him do that through his word. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would challenge and engage our doubts by your grace and kindness. Let us know you face to face by the Spirit. Reveal yourself to us. Speak to us and encourage us. Challenge us to grow in grace, to be diligent, to pay more attention, to confirm, to make sure of. Give us grace to do all those things. If we have drifted into doubt, Lord, call us back. We love you, and it is a privilege to be your child, to be called your beloved. God, we ask for grace to live that way every day as a loved child of yours, living holy, godly lives, waiting for your return, confronting all these doubts with your word because of your patient and gracious character. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.